With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hall of Fame coaches, national champions, lottery picks, the best minds in basketball. Welcome into the sidelines with Evan Daniels. What's up, college basketball fans? Welcome back to the Sidelines Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Daniels, college basketball insider at FS1, as well as the director of basketball recruiting at 24-7 Sports. Today's episode is the 87th episode of the Sidelines Podcast. I can't believe it's been that many. Today's featured guest is former college and NBA coach and NBA front office executive Kevin Eastman. It's a guy that I've been lucky enough to, to be around some and, and have learned a lot just from hearing him speak, but also watching him work. We had a pretty lengthy conversation about his career, the differences between coaching in, in college and, and coaching in the NBA, his front office experience. And then we dove into the book that he recently came out with that I thoroughly have enjoyed called Why the Best Are the Best. Some awesome stories in here. He he talks quite a bit about LeBron James, Doc Rivers, tells a great story about Kobe Bryant too. So make sure you stick around for that conversation. Before we get to it, I want to make sure that you are subscribed and supporting the Sidelines Podcast. The best way to do that is to go to Apple Podcasts and or your favorite podcast app. Hit the subscribe button for me, leave a rating, leave a review. All those things are helpful. You can also shoot me a note over on Twitter or Instagram. The handle is at Evan Daniels. Without further ado, let's jump to that conversation with Kevin Eastman. It's time to go minimum with Evan Daniels. Send it in, big fella. Now I want to welcome in longtime basketball coach, worked in college, worked in the NBA, worked as a front office executive, Coach Kevin Eastman to the Sidelines podcast. Kevin, thanks for joining the show. No, the pleasure is mine. I'm looking forward to it. Of course, and I want to make sure that we get to your book, Why the Best Are the Best, here in a little bit. Before we do, I wanted to chat with you a little bit about your career. I mentioned it a second ago, but you were an assistant coach in college for, for nine years, three years as a head coach at an NAIA school. And then you became a head coach at UNC Wilmington and Washington State, and, and then you went on to the NBA. When did you kind of realize that coaching was in your blood and, and that's the route you were going to go? Well, I, I probably would say that I always knew that basketball was in my blood and that whenever I was on the court or, or around players or coaches, I was just in a, you know, it, it was always a very positive, enthusiastic state of mind when I was there. So when I stopped playing, I was offered a position as a graduate assistant at the University of Richmond, and it just made logical sense to me to to go into coaching. I had done a little bit of skill development by the time I graduated college and before I got that job offer, so I knew I enjoyed working with players and trying to help them get better. So when that first offer came, it was from a guy by the name of Lou Getz, who used to work at Duke under the Duke Bill Foster, not the Clemson and Virginia Tech Bill Foster of yesteryear, but he worked for the Duke Bill Foster. And he got the University of Richmond job. I said yes to his offer. And then from that point on, I have sweated a lot, but I haven't worked a day in my life. <laughs> but how difficult was it for you to go from coaching in college to coaching in, in the professional ranks? It's something that we see quite often now. And Fred Hoiberg did it. Billy Donovan did it. How difficult was that transition? Well, for me, 
there were a few things that came into play. Number one, when Doc Rivers offered me the job with the Boston Celtics, I really went to work for Doc even more so than I went to coach in the NBA or I went to be an employee of the Boston Celtics. There was just something about Doc that I knew I could learn a lot. I knew that he would challenge you in whatever role he gave you. So that was really the driving force of me taking that job. But in terms of once I got there, you know, there's always a seed of doubt because that level, as I often say when I go around the country and speak to both the corporate world and, and, and sports teams, uh, I talk about, you know, you don't have the monopoly on doubt. You don't have a, the monopoly on concern. We all do. And no matter who the, the, the most successful people are in life, whether coaches or even corporate executives, there's always some seeds of doubt. And I had some of those when I first went because everybody wants to coach in the NBA. Everybody wants to coach all-star players. Everybody wants to coach future Hall of Fame players. But as I say in my talks, guess what? They put Hall of Fame expectations on you. You better know your stuff. I mean, you better have it down cold or else they may, they may not talk to you for a week if they don't think you can help them get to where they want to go, if they don't think you have the, the competence to hold the position that you have. So that was always in the back of my mind. So I studied like crazy because the pro game is different in terminology, pace of play, matchups, many, many things. It's different than the college game. So for me, it was just getting over that hump of, okay, at what point do I feel like I got this? I can do this. And it doesn't come right away. You really have to work for it. And you should because that's the highest level of, of basketball that there is in the world. Do you have any examples of what you were talking about with the guys and from a respect level that they started to respect, whether it be you or, or other guys, if, if you did know what you were talking about? Yeah, I think what happens, regardless of who the player is, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, you know, J.J. Redick, Chris Paul, it doesn't matter. Or even my work in the offseason with the stuff I did for Nike, and you have a, a Kevin Durant who I started with when he was a sophomore. They just want to know that you know what you're talking about. And for me, the biggest thing was the terminology and the speed of the game. Could I see the corrections quick enough? And I think even in, let's take Boston, for instance, I think the players saw that, that, that Doc trusted what I said to him because I didn't have a big speaking role on the practice court. Mine was to kind of go in, correct real quick, and get out. Whereas Doc had a big speaking role. Tom Thibodeau, who was our defensive coordinator, had a big speaking role. So you heard Doc's and, and Tibbs' voices a lot during practice. Mine might actually be more on the sideline. But the more I was able to say, hey, here's what I saw, here's what I think, you know, all the guys started to see that, man, this guy, he does get it. He doesn't have to say a lot, but what he says makes sense. So I don't know that it was one specific instance as much as it was like I can remember one of the first practices they were talking about a rip screen. So to tell you the truth, I had to pretend like I knew it. I had never <laughs> heard that term before. It's a back screen in college. And when you work for Doc, he doesn't like give you the vocabulary list. He expects you to just know it. And you've got to hit the ground sprinting, not running. That's the expectation he puts on you. So I had to go back and study that night and then go over all the, the you know, the intricacies of, of defending a rip screen. Whereas a guy like Tom Thibodeau, who's known for his defense, I mean, he probably talks about it in his sleep. He knows it that well. So it, little things like that. But the biggest thing really, Evan, in the NBA, it's an overwhelmingly high percentage of building relationships with players. If they feel that you have their best interests at heart and that you are coaching to help them reach their goals, 
they'll be all in if you have the competence. But even if you have the competence, but they feel that you're in it for yourself and maybe you can get a head coaching job in the NBA, they're likely to turn you off. So I was very cognizant of that, and that's something that Doc kind of taught me early on. You mentioned that you more took a job for Doc Rivers more than just went to work in the NBA, and I think it's pretty clear just from the conversations I've had with you, I've heard you speak, and from reading your book, that you have a really high respect level for Doc Rivers. If you could pick out one thing that maybe was the most important thing you learned from your time with him, what would it be? That it's extremely important to be able to read people. And in order to do that, you have to look deeper into that person in front of you. You know, a lot of people will see a player just walk on the floor. Doc will see that his shoulders are slumped. His right eye is bloodshot. His chin is down in his chest. You know, whereas maybe some others just thought, ah, there comes, uh, whatever, Paul Pierce walking on the floor. Or Doc will notice that Paul didn't go on the treadmill first when he does every single day. So what's up there? So he taught me to, number one, really, really pay attention to what's in front of you. And that actually played out and played onto the floor as well. You know, I started to see the game at a deeper level because he taught me how to read situations and see what was going on. And then the other thing is, as you've probably heard, and you've been around Doc maybe at some point, he's a great relationship builder. And he does it by telling people the truth. But he does it in such a way where it's not accusatory. It's more, here's where I want you to go. Here's what you're not doing that's holding you back from getting there. And that could be with an individual or a team. But he's just got great people skills and good feel of people and situations. Kev, you have such a unique background because of coaching at so many different levels. And then, you know, you closed out your career working in the front office with the Clippers. And that's kind of what I wanted to transition to. What was the adjustment from being on the court and coaching to working in a front office and playing that role? Well, the biggest transition was trying to figure it out first. You know, I'm glad I took the position. I'm not sure I would have just done it on my own. But if you remember, during that time is when there was an ownership shift. And there was a void there between when Donald Sterling went out and before Steve Ballmer took over. It was the early years even of Steve, that first year. So when Donald Sterling was ruled out by the NBA, Doc wanted someone in that position to try and start to put, because we didn't know how long it was going to be before an owner came on board. So Doc wanted someone in that front office position that he trusted, that he knew, uh, and also that could maybe start putting in the culture he wanted across the organization. And that was my main role. But what I found out was it's a lot easier to immediately impact a game and maybe a a player's performance that night than it is to take an employee and immediately impact their lives or their careers. And what I found out was there has to be a consistency of relationship building, consistency of care and concern for what they want out of their career, Uh, as well as an ability to to hold people's feet to the fire about, no, this is the way we're doing it now, whether it's how the reports were written or whether it was how we are going to conduct ourselves when we were on the road, whether it was how we were going to deal with the players. This is how we're doing it now. So those things quickly come to mind. And then the other thing is, you know, you think, okay, you get a vice president's role at at an NBA organization, and you think you got all these people working for you. Well, guess what? The problems come to your desk first. So (laughs) I had to create some strategies for myself 
to get away sometimes so I could think about what's going on, just get some real quality think time. Because sometimes in those positions, you can be on the treadmill all day. And before you know it, you haven't gotten anything done that you needed to get done. And you really haven't put the quality of thought and the depth of thought into a issue, problem, challenge that you have in front of you. You're just kind of dealing with today. You know, I, I guess the saying goes, life happens. And it does in the NBA, too. So I had to learn how to organize my day in such a way that, that I could lead people but also get X amount of things done per day that could help Doc or the organization move forward. In terms of that role, what was the thing that you thought worked out the best in terms of implementing and trying to create that new culture? Well, the one thing I did do is I constantly walked around the offices. I wanted to talk with people on their home floor, not mine. So what I did is I went to offices. I, I went to where people worked, right? And I, I went into their comfort zone rather than, uh-oh, you got to go into the vice president's office. You know, sometimes that's not the best place to do things. So what I tried to do really was continually uh, stop by, talk with people, let them know what we're doing, why we're doing it, and just keep an open communication line. You know, I guess in some companies, maybe they do that quarterly. Well, I wanted to do it a little more often. But the big thing was I, I really wanted them to understand that part of our culture was that we are going to communicate with each other. Uh, we are going to care for each other, even in the even upstairs, as we used to call it. You know, the, our, our practice floor was downstairs on the first floor, and the, the front office and all the employees were predominantly on the second floor. So, uh, and we had maybe about on the basketball side, maybe 45, 50 people. So, so it wasn't overbearing. You can get around and talk to a lot of people in one day. So I kind of led by walking around, as silly as that sounds. But I wanted them to hear it from me as, as often as, as I could. And right. then I wanted to deal with any issue or problem directly with the person, not through email, not through text. You mentioned going to their offices, and I actually noticed a tweet that you sent out, I don't know, a month or two ago, where you said you were always curious what the office setup looked like for the people that you admired. And you had a video of your office. I'm curious yeah. why so much curiosity in terms of the office setups. I thought that was unique. Uh, I, yeah, I always wanted to see if there were books in there. And if there were, what were they? I wanted to see how organized the office was. I wanted to see if there was any correlation between an organized office and an organized person. I just kind of wanted to get a feel of, of how they laid it out. Because one of the things that I always, and, and I can't say it was 100% pure, but whenever anyone talked, I talked to anyone in my office, I never wanted a desk between me and that person. I didn't want a barrier where when it's your home turf and you're behind the desk, you know, you have the power. I didn't want that. I wanted it kind of equal. So even if I stayed the way I structured my office, I saw this in one guy's, he had his desk, he had his chair behind his desk, but to the side of the desk was a nice, comfortable chair. So if someone came in, I could actually stay in my seat, turn and they could be in, in a nice, comfortable chair. We could talk to each other without anything in between us. So, But it was just a curiosity, like uh, what's it look like? How big is it? You know, those types of things. And I, I don't know why it just was, but I learned some things when I was in there. So in different offices. For sure. I was curious before we moved on from the front office executive portion, what was maybe the most desirable kind of non-negotiable competitive character trait whether it be recruiting or, or drafting a player that you kind of looked for. Oh, a, a trait in? 
Yeah, a like a trait in a player. Uh, like, what, what, what was that that one yeah. just kind of non-negotiable trait that you wanted in a guy? Well, I don't know that there was one as much as we – oh, and we got a little bit away from it maybe in, in L.A. for a tad there, and I think Doc and Lawrence have reset the organization and Steve in a way that, that all of them are in alignment. And, and that became a, a hard character, or high character, hard-playing, team-oriented, loves the gym not enjoys the gym, loves the gym. And then because Doc will throw a lot of X's and O's at the guys throughout the course of the year, we had to evaluate if a guy had a basketball IQ or not. And then the, the, the one thing that Doc wanted to make sure was are the players over themselves. And I think they're there now with the group they have. So Lawrence, well, Steve at the top, then Lawrence right underneath Steve, Lawrence Frank, and then Doc. They've reset the, the Clipper organization. I think you can see it even in, as you read articles. Obviously, I know it firsthand, right? But I think people can read about it. But those are some of the things that that and you know the basic thing is you, you have to have a talent or a skill that can get you you know on the floor at at, at some point. But talent alone, there's some really good talent on some of the teams that are at the bottom of the league. So we used to say that there's players with talent, and we don't want them. And there are talented players, and that's who we want. And the difference is in the spelling. There's an E and a D at the end of talented, and that's the group we want. And that was what we, you know, I just termed it an extra dimension. What else beyond their one skill? Let's say Ray Allen. If his shot's not on that night, what else can he bring to impact winning? Could be he brings something in the locker room. It could be that he brings something in pregame where he really gets guys to focus even even deeper in the scattering ports. It doesn't matter what they bring, but what else do you bring other than just your talent? Those are some of the things that Doc kind of wanted us to be aware of. Yeah, that's great insight. I know since you retired from coaching and working in the front office, you've been doing speaking engagements uh, to teams, to corporations. I've been lucky enough to, to hear you speak at some camps. Some of your messages, where do you go with some of these conversations and talks? Well, uh, in really in the sports or the corporate world, there's only certain things that I feel that I, I can speak on and, and speak on from actually being there, from experiencing it. And that's building a culture, building a team, its leadership. And then the one I get asked to speak on the most is what I wrote the book on, which is why the best are the best. What are their habits? What are their strategies? What is their mindset? What are their rituals that allowed them to be in that conversation or to ultimately become the best? The best. So, and no matter sports world or corporate world, look, it's very hard to be the very best. That's hard to do. And for some people, that put, that's, that's a lot of pressure that's put on them, and it's a daunting task. So we often say that there's two bests, and we just want you to strive for one of the two. There's the best, and there's my best. And then I go into detail and stories about these are how guys have become their best or the best. This is what they've done. This is how they think. But ultimately, you know, the, the book came about because I, I always had this belief that there's more inside each of us. And sometimes we just don't know how to get it out. We want to get it out, but we just don't even know where to start, let alone know how to get there. And so we live on this treadmill that I talked about earlier. And the treadmills, I guess it's also called life. And they haven't had time. People haven't had time to, 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 to push pause or to slow down, get off the treadmill and just think about where do they want to go? 
on their own success climb and how can they get there? And that's what the book tries to do and what my talks try to do. Whether you want to become a best, better team, have a better culture, become a better leader or become the best in either of those three areas or just in general in your life. So those are the things that I speak about. It really is a very motivating book, and in it, you outlined 25 power words. I'm curious mm -hmm. your process of coming up with those words. I mean, I'm sure you probably could have put 50 in there, but you narrowed it to those 25. How'd you come up with that group? Here's how it all came about. I do a lot of reading, a lot. Articles, magazines, blogs, newsletters, books. And over my 30-plus years in the game, 35, whatever it was, I started to see certain words that, that the best of the best always seem to use, either in answering a question or talking about their journey. So I started to chart those words. And the, the initial list was 92 words. And then some of them you know, were pretty similar in the same family. So I, could, so I eventually narrowed it down. And when I wanted to write a book, you know, what I, you know, I'm not real bright, but I figured no one wants to read about 92 words. <laughs> so I was able to whittle them down to 25. And then the interesting part about the words is both my publisher and editor, they wanted it to be literally ranked. And I said, no, I can't do that because they're, they're all so important. I can only tell you what is the most important rank and, or what, which is the most important word. And then from that word on, they, they're all tied for number two. So the most important word, as you know from reading the book, is the word truth. And because how can we get to where we want to go? How can we become who we've always dreamed of becoming if we don't know the truth about how to get there, if we don't know the truth about what we may be doing wrong that's keeping us from getting there, or if we don't know the truth of the things that we are doing right that are encouraging us to keep doing those things, how can we get there? But the truth's a tricky thing. It's hard. I mean, even though I wrote the book, I, 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 I can honestly say sometimes maybe I don't like hearing the truth, but I do know it's important. And as I often say, uh, you know, the truth may sting, it may embarrass you, but the truth really doesn't hurt. Whoever told us that when we were young, they, they, they were wrong. Truth doesn't hurt. The truth helps. It stings, it embarrasses us, but ultimately it helps if we'll take it and ins insert that truth one way or the other to keep doing what we've been doing or change the way we were doing things that didn't work and insert that into our lives. One of the things that I've heard you touch on in, in, in terms of the word truth, I love this when you said it, is you called the NBA a truth league. I think you gave some examples with Ray Allen, and I thought that was a powerful message. You can't lie your way into that league, and you can't, if you get in, you can't lie your way to stay on a team. Your, your production each and every night will tell the coaches and the front office and the president and whoever else is involved in the personnel selection of that team whether or not you still need to be there and the truth comes in simple ways that if you say you're going to do something and you don't do it well you know you're not living that truth the truth could come in you say you're going to put more work into your game and work out and then we never see you in the gym the truth could come in ways where you say something in the locker room that was detrimental to the team, yet when you go in front of the front office or the coaches, you say the complete opposite. But in, a, in terms of production and performance, what you do that night, that was your truth that night. 
and over the season it will play out whether you belong in this league or not. You can't you can't fake your way in the NBA. There's too many good players, and there's too few players relative to how many play. So if everyone has a maximum roster, it used to be 450, right? 15 players, right. 30 teams. So now it's 17 with the two ways. But basically between 450 and 500 players, that's it. And you think about all the players that are playing in this world, it's hard to get one of those spots. No question. The other thing that I wanted, I think in the book, you got to this talking about LeBron James and you were working him out on Nike's campus. And I thought this was a great story that, you know, obviously I cover high school and, and college, but that a lot of these kids really need to hear. The setup was that, that you're on Nike's campus and I guess they're recruiting him. Um, this is after he, he's coming out of high school and you're told to put him through a workout. I just kind of wanted to hear you tell that story because I thought this was pretty powerful. I think a lot of kids need to hear this. Yeah, so uh, LeBron, it was before the draft, and LeBron was obviously going to be the, the, the first pick. Nike had brought him out before the draft to pitch him as to be one of their endorsers, right? When LeBron was out there, one of the things Nike is really good at, they, they look at the total person. So they wanted him to get at least a workout while he was out there. He's going to be out there for a couple of days, and they wanted at least one workout. So they called me, and I, I flew out to Portland. We did it right there on Nike's campus, beautiful gym. And as we were going through, after about six minutes of the, the, the workout, uh, I had never met LeBron before. So we kind of got introduced uh, through the Nike people. Uh, and then I said, you know, uh, let's go through a pro shooting workout. How about that? And he said, yeah, I'm good. So we started going through after we warmed him up, maybe six or seven minutes of warming him up and getting a little bit of a sweat going. He wanted to work on his three-point shot which wasn't anywhere near what it is today. Uh, so we did a couple of things mechanically with his feet and his follow-through that we just wanted to concentrate on. And as you got to feel that maybe a little bit into it, we started to really go game speed because I told him, you know, if, if you want to do an NBA workout, it's game shots from game spots at game speed or else it's not an NBA workout. So the only one going game NBA speed uh, as I looked at this situation was me. So, I finally stopped and I said, hey, look, we, we got a decision to make, okay? We can keep going at this kind of high school level of workout or we could go at the level that you're going to be at in, in one month from now. I mean, what's the story? What do you want to do? He said, let's go. So I did. You know, I might have sprinkled in some words that maybe, <laughs> you know, you don't say in church, I guess, uh, during the course of the workout. Really pushed him hard, hard, like no breaks. I mean, and we were supposed to go about 40, 45 minutes. Well, about an hour and a half later, that Nike people were waiting for us. We were drenched. So I kind of was a little hard. So I went over to him. I said, hey, Bron, look, I didn't mean to get on you that hard. But I just felt that we just needed to, to do the workout that way. He said, coach, look, you didn't offend me at all. He said, I want to, whoever I work with, I just want to know what I need to know to get better each and every day. And then it hit me. You know, all these kids want to make this incredible jump to be the best player in their high school and the best player in their region and the best player in their state and all that sort of stuff. But what the best players, they don't, they don't talk a whole lot about, about that. But they talk all the time about getting better because they know that a little bit better today, a little bit better tomorrow, a little bit better, a little bit better. As you add all those up, it's kind of like Kobe says with that 4 a.m., you know, Kobe says one of the things that, that differentiates him during his career and everybody else is 4 a.m. And it's because that's when he started his first workout in the off season. 
So he got at least one and sometimes two more workouts in per day than every other player in the NBA. So as Kobe says, over time, that builds up, right? And all of a sudden, you can see why these guys are who they are. They just want to get a little bit better, a little bit better with the crossover, a little bit with inside-out dribble, a little bit better with his feet on his jump shot. And, you know, then he goes to Cleveland, and, 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 and Chris Gent started work with him, and Lloyd Pierce, and all these guys who are now uh, helping him uh, to continue to, to work. His shot has gotten better. So, but the, but the message is you got to work. And the second message is just try and get a little bit better each day. Don't try and take a be the best pill because it never works. You really should go check out this book, Why the Best Are the Best. A great insight from Kevin. And obviously this type of thing is, is such an undertaking. How long did it take you to write this? Well, I head wrote it in 35 years. You know what I'm saying? I, it was in my head for, for 35 years. I was just kind of curious. Uh, <laughs> now, the words themselves didn't come into play until, you know, maybe the last two years. But at, when I actually sat down and wrote it, you always hear about this, that you can get into a rhythm with your writing or right. a flow. Well, I got into a flow and over a 10-day period basically wrote the book. Wow. Um, but I had, you know, Evan, I, I mean, I, I was thinking about it the whole way and I guess if you count putting like the words in order and 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 organizing the book you know it, it was more than 10 days but once I sat down and knew the order I wanted it in and just started writing it just kept coming out and it, like any you know I kept hearing this from some author friends of mine don't try and get it to perfect just try and get it to better each day because if you want to get it to perfect it'll never come out right the other point with that is he, they would say that as soon as you read it for the first time, once it's done and, and it's out in public, you're going to say, oh, I forgot this. Oh, I should have put this in there. That's just the way life is when you write. So and sure enough, it happened to me. Yeah, I'm sure you so, I'm sure you have like five things that you wanted to change or, or add or, or probably yeah. a, a word you wish you included. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I always get asked that question. Were there any words that you didn't include? And, and there really, there were two that I was going to put in, but I kind of tried to put them in in different ways. And that word, that the first word is depth, the depth of your preparation, the depth of your workouts, the depth of your thinking about the game, the depth of your plan to become successful. The best of the best, they go a little bit deeper than most and certainly deeper than the average person goes. And then the other word is, and you've heard me, I think, tell the story about Kobe and the word until, you know, the best of the best, they don't work on things just for one hour or 35 repetitions. They work on it until they master it that day or until they get the most out of themselves that day. There's no clock with the best people. They just have this drive to become a little bit better and try and master things. And that word until is probably one that should have had a little more prominence. Yeah, I think we can all learn lessons from both of those. Kevin, I really appreciate you taking out the time and coming on the podcast and sharing your story and talking about your book, which I thoroughly have enjoyed. Where can my listeners get this book? Yeah, well, they can obviously go on Amazon, uh, but I do have to say in a good way, maybe a bad way, I don't know, but <laughs> Amazon's run out of stock three times now. So we always try and keep a batch actually in our at our house so people can order off of our website. We've yet to not fulfill an order, whereas sometimes Amazon just, it's the way it is. 
I mean, they just run out of stock. So they can get that on KevinEastman.net, and that's E-A-S-T-M-A-N, KevinEastman.net. And then if they, you know, some people aren't readers and that sort of thing, and they don't even want to do the nooks and all that, but people can follow me on Twitter at Kevin Eastman. And there's a lot of these, like we went over some bullet point things today. That's all my Twitter is. It doesn't tell you, you know, where I ate last night and and those types (laughs) of things. It's, It's really about trying to help people get better at whatever it is they want to get better at and how to move up and and how to create a better team, all those things. So those would be the two. And if anyone wants to hit me with an email, it's Kevin at KevinEastman.net. Awesome. Well, I haven't told you this, but just my brief time that I've been able to spend around you, whether it's been at, at USA Basketball or Nike Basketball Camp, I've learned a lot from you and I've really enjoyed this book. I, honestly, I'm not a huge reader, but I flew through it and I really enjoyed it. So I enjoyed this conversation. I'm really appreciative that you came on the podcast to talk a little bit about your story. No, I would have done this no, no matter what, because you're doing a lot for people with what you do and and the evaluations that you put out, you're helping a lot of kids reach their dreams, but I've also been around you and you're also telling kids the truth about how to get there. And so I'm in anything you need me to do. I'm there. Kevin, I appreciate it. Have a great week. Thanks, Kevin. I'd like to once again, thank Kevin Eastman for taking the time out and jumping on the sidelines podcast. Enjoyed that conversation before I let you guys go. I want to make sure that you are subscribed to the sidelines podcast, shoot over to Apple podcasts and or your favorite podcast app. Make sure that you hit the subscribe button for me. Please leave a rating and a review. You can also shoot me a note over on Twitter or Instagram. The handle is at Evan Daniels. As always, thanks for listening and have a great week.